Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, Amber, how are you? Doing fine. So we're down one Bill Donahue today. Yeah, and uh, Bill actually got out uh, got out to a running head start uh, uh, ahead of the rest of us, because we do have a little programming note uh, for the folks at home if you want to fill them in on that. Yeah, so we very rarely do this, but we're actually going to take a little summer break. We're going to take the next two weeks off from Pro Se shows. That means our next show back is the slightly ominous Friday the 13th of August. I'm sure that'll work out fine. <laughs> I mean, I like some spooky things. We'll see what we can drum up for that show. Yeah, sure. We'll come back with a, we'll, we'll come back with some real bangers for you, I promise. <laughs> but I did want to tell people, even though we are taking a little bit of a break so we can do a few summer things we all have planned... That doesn't mean you won't hear from us at all. We're still going to have episodes of our Pro Se Movie Club that come out during the weeks that we're off. So those will drop on Tuesdays. You'll still have us in your ear. Yeah, and we got some good ones on deck. Um, the uh, A Few Good Men episode dropped this week. Um, getting some good feedback on that one. The next two weeks, uh, the shows, uh, the movie club shows, next week we're doing My Cousin Vinny, the venerated legal comedy, which has become kind of a sacred text among law students and lawyers everywhere. And then uh, the following week, uh, we're doing The Devil's Advocate, which Amber somehow allowed me to handle the, uh, uh, handle the show duties for. And I can confirm that I escaped with my employment intact, which I didn't anticipate when we started that <laughs> one. So that's good. You did a great job. I was really excited to talk about this movie because it's so outside the box of the other ones we've done. Yes. So really fun to dive into that movie. Yeah, so stick around for those. Uh, we do have a really interesting show for you this week. A little bit later on, I'm going to be talking to our own Marco Poggio, who wrote a really interesting story a few weeks ago about um, the... New York State's uh, cannabis legalization law. Um, lots of states are legalizing marijuana and rec- for for recreational purposes. But what we what his story was about and what we talked about um, was the wrinkle the the provision in the New York law that calls for the automatic expungement of past uh, convictions for uh, on marijuana charges, which is something that advocates have pushed for for a long time. It's been implemented now in this bill, and we'll, uh, it was a very interesting talk with Marco, so stick around for that one. And before we get to that, we have our regular news to get into. I know you wanted to kick us off today, Alex. Yeah, there was uh, last week we saw um, a little bit of intrigue, the kind of story that always uh, puts uh, uh, fires up our radar here, um, where uh, a federal judge in Florida ordered a new trial for three men that were convicted on fraud charges after learning that the gov- that government prosecutors had deliberately lied to the court about sending a cooperating witness into the defense's strategy meetings. So um, it's a huge blemish for the U.S. attorneys who brought the case. They initially kind of framed this, this issue as like an inadvertent oversight. Uh, and then on subsequent filings to the court, it basically turned out that they like fully deceived the court uh, on purpose. Uh, and it's like created like a huge black eye. Obviously, a very interesting story. Yeah, we don't usually hear about this kind of legal espionage. It's very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me the details. What happened here? Yeah, so the case at issue uh, was brought back in 2015. Prosecutors in Florida's Southern District charged four men with a mail fraud scheme uh, under which they would, uh, these these guys allegedly, uh, would inform people that they had won some kind of money prize in like a sweepstakes. 
but that they needed to pay uh, a small fee to claim the money between like 20 and 50 bucks. Now, this is all this was all alleged to be a sham. And uh, gov- the, the government said that they sort of scooped these small charges off of something like 100,000 people. Um, so they brought the case. It seems to be fairly straightforward, whether, you know, you you tell people that they have won a prize they haven't won and you charge them money for it. Um, But things began to go a little bit sideways as they were getting ready for trial. Um, The four defendants uh, who were were charged in the case entered into a joint defense agreement, which is kind of what it sounds like. They are all repped. um, They are all their their lawyers all work, uh, you know, on the same legal team. They meet, they talk strategy, what have you. Now, at some point in 2016, about a year after the case was brought, um, three of the men learned that the fourth guy, a guy named John Leon, um, had actually struck a deal to cooperate with the prosecution several months prior. And he had done this, uh, he had struck this deal with the government, and then in the intervening time before they learned about this, he had been attending these defense meetings. So now you essentially have a government witness just sitting in on um, defense uh, legal sessions, um, which obviously is a huge deal in the eyes of the court. Um, at the time, you know, a number of red flags were raised. Uh, the, three, uh, the three defendants moved to dismiss the indictment. And the court uh, certainly said that this is, this is improper and it shouldn't have happened. Um, but the, the court believed the government when it said that this was inadvertent and that they didn't know that they had received privileged information. Their sort of remedy for this was to not have this cooperating witness end up testifying um, to sort of wall him off from the rest of the proceedings. Um, The trial goes on, and in 2017, the three men are convicted on a conspiracy mail fraud charge, which kind of looked to be the end of the story, but it got uh, got a little more interesting. Yeah, what you laid out there is not great. I mean, to have that, you know, flipped witness that's now part of um, the prosecution go into these defense meetings, but you could see how maybe wires would get crossed and this would just be an accident. Yeah. Uh, I know we go beyond that idea though. Yes. Um, so after that got disclosed, um, the DOJ's office of professional responsibility, which is sort of like an internal watchdog for prosecutors, um, starts poking around and it, it, it eventually, uh, uncovered some pretty damning info about the government and the prosecutors were eventually forced to file these corrections of the record to the court, basically saying that they had provided inaccurate information about the extent of their interactions with this witness who they flipped through a series of, uh, of briefs filed to the court. It was revealed that the government gave this guy, Leon, the explicit authorization to attend the defense meetings after he flipped. They literally said to him, go in, sit on the meetings. And then they, through these, through those meetings, they received notes from the defense team, uh, timelines and legal strategy they became privy to, um, all as part of this uh, plan they had um, to send their witness um, basically invading uh, the the defense camp. And that's exactly what the judge, um, uh, the judge is a man named Darren Gales, who uh, is overseeing the case. He wrote last week, quote, in sum, the government knowingly invaded the defense camp, which is improper. Uh, he added later that, quote, the most egregious thing is the government lied to the court about it. So um, a pretty, pr- pretty firm rebuke there. Uh, by the way, don't do bad stuff. And if you do, please don't lie to me about it. That doesn't make me happy. 
Yeah, this is some real spy stuff. I mean, it wasn't just yeah. an accident. They, they had notes back and forth. That also seems, this always amazes me about the stuff that comes out about any kind of scandal. How much people put in writing? Very crazy. Yeah. Um, um, so what, what happens now that the judge has said, uh, hey, guys, this is very bad. Yeah, well, now six years after the case was filed and four years after these guys were convicted on this charge, uh, they get a new trial to show for it. Um, the prosecutors who um, did this bad stuff uh, were replaced, I think, two or three years ago for obvious reasons. And the judge said that the retrial will be done by the new counsel. He actually commended the new the new government attorneys for being pretty forthcoming about what their colleagues had done wrong. So I just wanted to, to, to mention that. Um, but he basically said that it was impossible uh, to say that this misconduct did not affect what, uh, you know, what the jury, you know, uh, the, the, the jury's reasoning for eventually finding these guys guilty. Um, the, the, the quote from the order here was, quote, I think a new trial is required here to uphold the integrity of these proceedings and also to protect the defendant's constitutional rights. Um, the the uh, defendant's lawyers also put out a statement that said, you know, the prosecutor shouldn't be allowed to cheat, which I think is a reasonable ask uh, by them. So uh, we got a new trial coming up uh, in this case uh, that otherwise may not have been that interesting. Like I say, it's a pretty straightforward fraud case, but you get uh, a little bit of theatrics here. So I want to pivot us from one trial that you just talked about, Alex, to a different kind of trial. But this one with its own sort of eye popping headline a Wisconsin federal jury awarded a huge sum, over $125 million, to a former Walmart employee who has Down syndrome and said she was fired because of her disability. Uh, that's uh, quite a lot of cashish. Um, I know that often we, we, we do like to sort of, there is a, some measure of pause when, when awards like that are handed down, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, you know, uh, this is an, an interesting sort of workplace accommodation case, which I know is right up your alley, Amber. Um, what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, it really is. I want to tell the story of this worker, but part of why I brought this one to talk about is because it is such a high number for a single plaintiff case. I mean, usually when you have an employee yeah. case and it's some big, huge number, it's because it's a class or collective action. Exactly. And this yeah. is not that. So. We have a woman named Marlo Spath. She was a longtime Walmart employee with Down syndrome. She worked for the company um, in Wisconsin for about 16 years. She had a part-time shift there. She worked noon to four, and it was about three to four days a week. Her work had been praised. She'd gotten raises, good performance reviews, all of that stuff. But according to the lawsuit she filed, around November 2014, Walmart switched over to a new computerized scheduling system, and that changed her hours. She then went to Walmart and said, hey, I can't work the new schedule. And the reasoning was that her condition really required her to maintain a pretty rigid daily routine, including um, riding public transportation to and from work, yep. eating dinner at a really regularly scheduled time, or she would get sick and, and have some other repercussions because of her disability. So even though she raised these concerns to Walmart right away, she even followed up numerous times saying that this was going to be a problem for her. The company didn't take any steps to fix her schedule or just refer back to her previous hours. Mm -hmm. She argued that this accommodation that she was asking for was owed to her under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's the employment law that a lot of people have heard of. It yep. covers a lot of things. But in the employment context, it requires employees employers to work with employees with disabilities to try to find an accommodation that will let them continue working as long as it doesn't have an undue burden impact yeah, not, on the employer. Not overly burdensome to their right. business or whatever. Yes. So yeah. in her argument for this accommodation, 
And in the lawsuit, subsequently, there it was pointed out that this location, it's a Walmart superstore. You know how big those are. It's open 24 hours a day. It employed over 300 employees. And she'd had that previous schedule for about 15 years. So obviously, they'd been able to do it for a long time. So the argument was that this really wouldn't be tough for Walmart to go ahead and accommodate. Right. But Walmart wouldn't change their mind. Um, they didn't reinstate her old schedule. And so she started to have attendance problems. She was disciplined a couple of times for attendance and punctuality issues and then eventually terminated in 2015. After she was fired, um, she and also two of her family members met with Walmart managers and requested that she be reinstated. Again, sort of pleading their case about what was going on here. And even though her termination letter had specified she was eligible for reinstatement, Walmart mm-hmm. declined to rehire her. So how do we get into the courtroom here? Um, that's, a, that's, I think, a capable uh, explanation of the background here. And I, and I, you, were, you were right to include the, sort of the, the basic sort of threshold question that's presented under the ADA. Uh, let's talk about the litigation a little bit. What, what, like, what, what exactly happened? Yeah, so many things um, in this area of the law and discrimination go through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and this was right. no different. So she went to uh, the EEOC. They actually thought this was a strong enough case that they mounted it themselves. The EEOC doesn't always do that, but here they did. Mm-hmm. They brought the case to trial. They explained basically the outline of what I just said. That a lot of that was what was presented to yeah. this jury. And they won big. The jury awarded $150,000 in compensatory damages and then that whopping $125 million in punitive damages. So that sounds great and huge for the worker. Yeah. But a spokesman for Walmart pretty quickly after this happened pointed out the verdict will likely be slashed all the way down to about $300,000. Um, that's because the ADA actually places a cap of $300,000 on non-economic damages. So mm-hmm. that would include compensatory and punitive, which is what the lion's share of, of the money was here. Right. Um, well, that's, I mean, just in terms of uh, what makes it an interesting news story, I mean, she won on the merits pretty easily, as you said, but in terms of the money that's at stake here, um, we could be looking at a huge drop-off of it. I mean, is that is it still an important case? Or, I mean, what's like the, the, the sort of, Big picture takeaway there. Yeah, that's a really worthwhile question because you do start to wonder as I'm explaining all this, you're like, Amber, why are we talking about this? What's going on? <laughs> we talked it- about this stuff in the meeting. <laughs> we have to we have to get this stuff straightened out, not yeah. on the air, preferably. I mean, the reason I wanted to bring it up though, yeah. is that the case is still a really important victory for both the EEOC and also just worker advocates mm-hmm. because such a large verdict sends a pretty big message out to the world of employers. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is they, they really can't just decline, blanket decline to accommodate someone and expect nothing to happen. Yeah. So even if the verdict isn't upheld at this high level, $300,000 is nothing to sneeze at if you are the kind of employer that maybe is a nationwide one like Walmart. Maybe you need to make sure you clean up your houses across the nation yeah. and these issues aren't lurking. And so I thought uh, the EEOC chair, her name's Charlotte Burroughs, she had a quote about this case and I thought it pretty much summed up the impact here. The substantial jury verdict in this case sends a strong message to employers that disability discrimination is unacceptable in our nation's workplaces. Earlier this year, 
New York joined the growing list of states to legalize recreational marijuana. But the Empire State's law goes a step further than most of its contemporaries by automatically expunging hundreds of thousands of cannabis-related criminal convictions, offering a clean slate to those hampered by aggressive enforcement in years past. Law 360's Marco Poggio joins us this week to break down the impact of this provision, the challenges that lie ahead in implementing it, and the likelihood of other states following New York's lead. Welcome to the show, Marco. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. It was a super interesting story. Um, I hope everybody reads it. Uh, we can talk through some of, the, some of the basics here, though. And I think a good place to start is just to break down New York's, legal, New York's marijuana legalization law and what sets it apart from some of the other bills that have worked through uh, state houses across the country. Yeah, so uh, this law is a very, very comprehensive bill uh, that does a lot more than just legalizing marijuana, um, although that's kind of a, the core principle. But right. in addition to that, he uh, creates uh, an expungement uh, process for people with convictions and for people who um, gain new convictions, uh, you, know, you know, as the state law changes. Mm-hmm. Um also, it has some very robust social equity provisions that uh, basically create a new market, uh, basically a new industry uh, in which uh, people of color and people who were targeted uh, more heavily by marijuana enforcement uh, have uh, uh, an opportunity to establish uh, new businesses. Uh, and so there are, there are provisions that take care of that. So uh, it's, a, it's a very broad bill that has been considered by many advocates as the, um, if you will, a blueprint of, mm-hmm. uh, of new uh, marijuana legalization uh, across the country. Yeah, I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to specifically talk about the expungement uh, provisions, because I know that that's something that's very important for advocates. And you broke that down in your story quite well. Um, can you just, I mean, I think it's, I think it's somewhat self-evident to anybody who follows this issue closely, but why is automatic expungement so important to people who, who lobby for these kinds of laws? Well, first of all, let's talk about expungement first. I mean, expungement is a critical component because uh, if you think about, you create a law that, that legalizes weed across the country, yeah. but then you have you still have people with records that some mm-hmm. of them are d- decades old. Yeah. And uh, these people can't even find jobs or housing that are kicked out of uh, their jobs when, you know, some of them uh, might get a, a drug test out of, out, of, out of the blue at their workplace. Yeah, or a background check or whatever it might right. be. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, all these problems were not addressed by, uh, by uh, other state laws that were passed in the, in the past decade. Because, I mean... Uh, Marijuana has been legalized in some states uh, almost uh, a decade ago. Think about right. Colorado, 2012, uh, Washington, 2012. But those states didn't have anything, uh, uh, a- any provisions in, in their laws that expunge records. Mm-hmm. So uh, they eventually came to pass uh, expansion laws uh, in recent years. Mm-hmm. So, so when advocates got it together in New York, they wanted to make sure that the expungement was a critical component of, of their law here. Um, and a, a very important, crucial uh, aspect is that it's automatic. So mm-hmm. um, before in 2017, New York passed uh, a law that allowed uh, people to uh, expunge their records, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a petition-based process. Yeah. So, so you know, you would file, you know, we would have to file some court papers. Some the burden is are... on the person to, to file things exactly. and, and take affirmative, exactly. uh, yeah, right. 
Right, right. So the person has to, uh, I mean, they can do it by themselves, but you know, it's an intimidating uh, legal document. You might not want to do it without a lawyer. If you mess so, something up, you know, you do, it's a right. high stakes thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, yeah, so, so as a result of that, uh, most people who were, uh, Potential beneficiaries of of of, of this law they couldn't take advantage of it. So mm-hmm. there were six hundred thousand New Yorkers were eligible, but uh, I think it just zero point five percent of them uh, were actually successfully completed the process and cleared the records. So the advocates that got involved in uh, that have been involved in 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 the uh, marijuana cannabis law, they said, no, we're not going to do that for 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 the new law. We're going to create an automatic process. In which basically the the uh, the person with the record doesn't have to do anything, mm-hmm. and the state has uh, since the bill was uh, enacted on uh, March thirty first mm-hmm. uh, this year, they have until the, the same the same date in twenty twenty three. So okay. they have exactly two years to expunge all those records, which you know could be quite a feat. You know if you think that. Some of those records uh, will have to be addressed uh, manually. I yep. mean, there's a lot to say about that. You know, it's well, a complicated well, yeah, process. Well, th- yeah, this is, a, this is a good time to talk about that because, I mean, not, it's obviously a provision that, um, you know, pe- that legalization advocates had been pushing hard for. You very capably broke down in your story about some of the, I mean, I wouldn't even call them trouble spots, but there are some logistical hurdles to implementing uh, a very ambitious provision like this. Um, what do those challenges look like, and how is that borne out in the early stages of implementation here? Yeah, I mean, um, so the New York cannabis law, uh, among other things, it decriminalizes the possession of, of uh, marijuana, which mm. is uh, which is codified as cannabis now uh, yeah. in the law, in the new law. It, it was it was named marijuana with the H, <laughs> by the oh, way, yes. with the H. Yes, <laughs> the old you know the old the old, old wacky school. tobacco spelling or whatever. Yes. Right, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> so uh, so they use cannabis to be to to be to include a broader uh, a broader range of of products sure. and uh, some of the offense. The old offenses involve, uh, let's say, uh, you know, cannabis uh, uh, concentrates and other other substances that are not really marijuana, but they're not classified as marijuana, but as controlled substances. Mm-hmm. So, um, unfortunately, there are a lot of a lot of uh, uh, there's uh, there's about three hundred uh, forty thousand convictions for controlled substances. Uh, possession where there's uh, you don't know uh, in the records that uh, which drug was involved. Okay. Basically, so uh, so courts will have to uh, basically go through. I don't want to say one by one, but many of them uh, mm-hmm. manually to see which which of those involve uh, cannabis uh, related substances and 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 expunge those and leave leave in place uh, other convictions that involve. Other substances that haven't been uh, decriminalized, you know, I don't know, LSD, uh, yeah. uh, you know, other other substances. I'm starting to see why this got a two-year uh, uh, runway to implement because right. that, that seems pretty arduous in cases like, like you say, where the record is incomplete or it's not clear, like you say. Uh, yeah. you, wrote, um, you wrote another story um, that's kind of separate from the, from the New York-specific issues um, relating to expungement and other legalization um, uh, uh, hurdles uh, that face immigrants uh, specifically, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. What did you find out when you were uh, uh, reporting that piece? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously there are logistical hurdles in expunging records, uh, um, but 
it's it's eventually it's gonna happen and all the OCA people you know the the, the agency that takes that has uh, the keeps the record uh, of convictions said no we're gonna we're gonna make it we're gonna make it by 2023 but that's gonna go on itself mm-hmm. uh, on its own but um to immigrants though is a completely different story like uh if you're an immigrant if you're not if you're a non-citizen whether you have a green card or you are an unlawful uh alien as uh, as uh you know the jurisdiction calls uh immigrants yeah um you pretty much uh can't have any uh contact with marijuana because marijuana is still illegal federally yeah so um if you have a, a, a prior uh, record for marijuana possession in New York, even if it's legalized and you get to expunge that record, you can still face deportation. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's one thing that advocates point out and immigration attorneys point out is if you, uh, don't believe that because, it, uh, because weed illegal is legal in New York, that if you're, if you're a non-citizen, you're, you're fine. No, you're not fine. You have to, uh, if you have a conviction, you have to, uh, basically petition this, the, uh, the state. Uh, it's uh, yep. something called, uh, 440 motion in which, uh, in which you basically vacate your uh, record in a way that is uh, accepted by immigration authorities. So it's a, it's a separate process, and it's a, it's a case-by-case evaluation. Mm-hmm. A court ultimately decides whether you can uh, vacate that record. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, you know, there is a path. Uh, to vacate your record, but it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a path that needs to be uh, taken seriously, and you can't just uh, kind of like, slip on it, you know. Definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, as as we can see here, I think no bill is a panacea, um, even one that advocates mostly cheer, as New York um, and other states are going to work through some of these hiccups here. Uh, you wrote that other states and other jurisdictions are beginning to take notice. Uh, can you tell us about the extent to which? New York's automatic expungement provisions um, have inspired or are inspiring similar measures in other states? Sure. I mean, look, the, um, the legislative process happens, uh, you know, in a parallel fashion in many states and, yeah. and federally. So, you know, but, but certainly uh, speaking to, to advocates, uh, it's clear that the New York bill uh, is, is being, is being sort of fashioned to be, uh, to be a blueprint, to be an example for other states. Sure. Um, Connecticut just passed a law, uh, that, uh, does a lot of what the New York law does. Um, the only difference is that the expungement, it, it has an automatic expansion provision, but only for, for a set amount of time, like a mm. time frame, uh, uh, for, uh, for basically, uh, offenses up until, 2015, uh, I believe, okay. and then it, it will switch. Uh, it will switch to uh, to a petition-based process. But other states, like New Jersey, has a, a automatic uh, expungement provision. Um, California and uh, and uh, and uh, California and New Mexico have uh, provisions uh, that allow for automatic uh, expungement as well okay. uh, for for marijuana. Uh, for Mariana offenses. Um, federally, there are at least two bills uh, in the works. Uh, uh, one is the Moore Act uh, that has been, um, you know, has been considered uh, in various iterations of Congress, but never really made it to the, uh, actually passed the House last year, but it never made it uh, okay. to the Senate. 
Uh, and the other one is a bill that just was just uh, uh, introduced by by Schumer la, uh, last week, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they they do include expungement provisions. They they differ in other aspects, but um, that's uh, I mean, the expungement definitely is uh, is a main component of of uh, uh, it's being debated uh, nationally mm-hmm. as a uh, as the way to go for the future. Well, and before we uh, started recording, you said that even here in New York, they're looking to kind of widen the ambit uh, of expungement even beyond uh, marijuana and cannabis, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, New York has been uh, um, has been uh, uh, trying to uh, push a bill as, called, uh, as part of the Clean Slate campaign, which is a, it's a nationwide campaign. Mm-hmm. But here in New York, uh, advocates have tried to, um, to push uh, this bill that would uh, basically uh, create an expungement process which is automatic for a much broader uh, uh, range of, of offenses uh, mm-hmm. which includes uh, which includes misdemeanors and felonies mm-hmm. and uh, the state of the bill is currently uh, stalling um, they are in New York no way <laughs> yeah yeah fortunately yes yeah. yes yes I mean advocates said that they try to they tried to rush it uh, through this uh, legislative session, but then uh, it, it looks like uh, it, it looks like the state senate uh, mm-hmm. might convene a, a special session this summer to take care of that. Uh, but it's, uh, I mean, the, the latest that I heard from the advocates is uh, it's, it's very uncertain and still kind of up in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're pushing it, and that's definitely, I would say, where most states and New York first are are heading in terms of expungement. Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, there, there's lots of fascinating developments and developments in a very uh, quickly moving uh, area of the law. Um, really enjoyed both the stories you wrote, Marco. Thanks for uh, joining thanks. the show to break them down for us. All right, thanks for having me. Thanks. Alex, I think we're about done with today's show. That wraps up everything we wanted to get through. Yeah, it was a pleasure as always, Amber, and wanted to uh, thank the folks again for tuning in, and uh, hope you don't miss us too much. Uh, As we said at the top of the show, we'll be off for the next two weeks. Um, Enjoy the movie club in the meantime, and we'll be back on uh, August the 13th. I also want to thank a lot of other people that participated in today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Marco Poggio, and our contributing reporters, Cara Salvatore and Haley Knoth. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again for our regular shows in two weeks and the movie club in the meantime.